0: It is what Erdogan says it is, right? So there is no difference between the party and Erdogan. There's no difference, almost, I would say today, between the Turkish state and Erdogan. He has such amazing, complete control and power over um, the country and the party.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, an entirely student-run podcast from Johns Hopkins University. My name is Amanda Yun, and I am joined today by my co-hosts, Cameron Brown and Lauren Zhao. Today on the podcast, we'll be exploring Turkey's leader, President Erdogan, and how his rise to power informs Turkish foreign policy. What are President Erdogan's personal ambitions? How does his worldview affect how Turkey interacts with regional and international actors? In order to better understand these questions, as well as President Erdogan and Turkish foreign policy, we are joined today by Dr. Henry Barkey. Henry Barkey is a senior fellow for Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and the Bernard L. and Bertha F. Cohen Chair in International Relations at Lehigh University. At CFR, Barkey works on the strategic future of the Kurds in the Middle East. Currently, he also serves as the chair of the Academic Committee on the Board of Trustees of the American University in Iraq, Suleimani. He has written extensively on Turkey, the Kurds, and other Middle East issues.
0: Thank you. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Great. So, can you start by introducing our listeners to a little bit of President Recep Tayyip um, Erdogan's history? How did he come to power, and how has he been able to maintain power?
0: Uh, he's um, he actually when he was quite young, he joined this um, Islamist party, the National Salvation Party, which was then led by a kind of semi mercurial person called Necmettin um, Erbakan, who in 1997 was briefly uh, prime minister in Turkey in a coalition government that the Turkish military um, pushed out. Erdogan himself was kind of a young, a little bit of a rebel rouser in that party. And then he ran for the municipality of Istanbul. And you have to understand that Istanbul is not just the largest city in in turkey but it is also the richest and the most important um and so he he became mayor of istanbul and he was actually quite successful as a mayor and he built a, a large following and he eventually first of first he broke with Necmettin Abakan who was too much of an Islamist. Even though now we are finding out that really ideologically there wasn't much difference between Erdogan and and his uh, kind of his um, mentor Necmettin Erbakan, but at the time he broke with Erbakan to essentially convey this image that he is kind of a yes, he's he, he's an Islamist, he's a conservative politician, but he was not that he was not. Um, uh, firebrand like uh, Erbakan, Erbakan was. So between the break and the, the management of the city of Istanbul, um, he made a name for himself. And he ran for elections in 2002, but the military figured out a way to exclude him. And so he had to to run, you know, his party won a majority in parliament in 2002. Uh, with the Turkish system is a little bit at this. In those days, was a little bit bizarre. With 35 percent of the vote, he got, I think, 60 to 70 percent of the seats. 60 percent of the seats, I should say, in parliament. But he couldn't get into parliament. So the, the eventually, what happened is that they, the 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 party figured out a way to circumvent. Uh, the military's uh, ban, and I think a member of parliament resigned, and Erdogan, Erdogan was nominated to replace that person, and that's how he got into parliament. And then once he got into parliament, he became prime minister. And then since then, that's so he became prime minister in two thousand and three, and and he is now that when the Turks when he changed the Turkish system from a parliamentary system to a presidential system, uh, he became president. And, uh, well, I should say he actually became president a little bit earlier than that. Um, but the, the pres- but it was not a presidential system. He became president in in the old system, where technically, power rested with the prime minister. But because he controlled the party so thoroughly, he ran the country from the presidency. Um, but then he changed the constitution. He, there was a referendum, and in the new constitution, all power resides with the president. The prime minister is, uh, non, completely unimportant person. And, um, so he became president, and now you have this very, very vertical hierarchical system where every decision is made in the presidential palace. Um, And the one thing I would say, in addition, is that he has every intention of staying in power for a very long time.
1: Great. So that was kind of a great recap for our listeners. Um, One question I had was, how did um, his current party, the Justice and Development Party, or AKP, I know there's been some conflict there. How did that play into Erdogan's rise to power? And what is that party's political platform?
0: When, when he formed the party uh, and he broke from Najmet Erbakan, as I mentioned, it, it, he was not alone. There were essentially six, seven heavy hitters from that, uh, na- the National Salvation Party from which they were bolting. Among them was, for example, Abdullah Kul, who would become foreign minister and then president of Turkey. Um, and uh, I'm not gonna bore you with the other names, but so there were six heavy hitters from the party. So it was kind of a think of it of as a as a group of leaders who created this new party, where Erdogan, because he had been mayor of Istanbul, because he had been very popular, because he led the party was kind of primus inter paris. So he was the most important of the six. But none of the six today are around him. He has managed to essentially get rid of them. And the party is made up of sycophants, of yes men and some women. Uh, and. So when you say, when you ask the question, question about the party's uh, philosophy, ideology, uh, it is what Erdogan says it is. Right? So there is no difference between the party and Erdogan. There's no difference almost, I would say today, between the Turkish state and Erdogan. He has such amazing, complete control and power over um, the country and the party that it is really quite 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 phenomenal. I mean yes Erdogan makes lots of mistakes and stuff like that but I also have to say that uh he has a thousand balls in the air at any point in time. He drops some he certainly drops some of them and he makes mistakes. He just did one this morning. Um but um he um he really manages it. Now part of the way he does it actually is through sheer fear, because if you don't kind of obey him, if you don't go along with him, you just get eliminated, uh, not physically, obviously, but you get kicked out, and lots of people also dissidents have gone are in jail now um, but just to give you one example from last two weeks is he just appointed the president. To this one of the two two most important universities in Turkey, Bozici of the Bosphorus University, which is really a gem of a university, it used to be an American university that became a Turkish university in 1971, and um, the guy he appointed is kind of a member of his party and a, you know one of his acolytes, supposedly an academic, but a guy who has. Really, no. I mean, no academic reputation to speak of. And plus, they've discovered that twenty uh, percent of his dissertation, PhD dissertation, has been plagiarized. Students, professors uh, the, protested and uh, had all kinds of organ- um, stuff happening on, on campus. Doesn't matter. Erdogan says, "This is the person I want, and this is the person you're going to have." But so he has essentially taken over every single institution of Turkey. He controls it, whether it's a university, it's a press, it's a judiciary, uh, it's a military, you name the institution, he has complete control. And that's how he runs the country.
1: So we've talked a little bit about Erdogan's rise to power and um, his party, but could you tell us a little bit about President Erdogan as a person?
0: Well, I, that's that's hard to say in a sense that, um, you know, see a nice guy or you see... <laughs> what I would say is that he managed to, let's say, fool most people, most observers, uh, including, I would admit, myself, uh, because when he came to power in 2002, 2003, he came to power on a platform of greater democratization. And remember, Turkey has always been under the tutelage of the Turkish military. And it isn't until 2007, uh, when the military made a terrible um, error, mistake, and opened up an opportunity for Erdogan to uh, dislodge them from, from power, so to say that, you know, Turkey was always run by politicians who had to always worry about what the military thought about an issue. And um, so he came to power essentially with this notion of democratization, getting closer to the European Union, definitely saying we want to become a member of the European Union. I mean, that was his motto. Um, and and the six around him, I mean the, f- the five others, I should say, the the heavy uh, hitters from the uh, uh, from the old party, they were all people like like him who said, you know, we want greater democratization, we want to become part of Europe. That's the future. And what we saw with time is that Erdogan essentially took a system that was very promising in terms of democratization. You had really the press, universities, an opening. You could say anything you wanted in Turkey, which was quite unusual, um, especially after 2007. But he slowly transformed um, Turkey from what was a promising democracy to a party-led authoritarian system. And now he's moved one step further to create essentially what I would call a personalistic authoritarian system. Right? Where power so was he was he always in did he always intend to, to trans to do th- this transformation? Um I think yes. He could have been stopped maybe. Um but the, one of the great problems in Turkey is that the Turkish opposition, the major opposition party the Republican People's Party has always been um I, I don't even have a way to describe it. I mean they they are all they always are they come up second. They can't seem to figure out a way to win elections, and it doesn't seem to bother them either. Um, they, I think they're very happy just being um, the second party in in the country. They doesn't. They don't have any responsibility. They can uh, they can talk in parliament and on you know, the press as much as they want. They're insignificant essentially, and so that has allowed Erdogan to to do all these things. If he had a serious opposition, he would. Not have been successful. The serious opposition paradoxically emerged in um, in two thousand fifteen when the Kurds, um, you know, twenty percent of Turkey's population is ethnic Kurds, and the Kurds managed to create a political party that entered parliament. Now, in Turkey, in order to become to for a party to get into parliament, you have to cross the ten percent threshold, and until two thousand fifteen, the Kurds could not do it i mean because the military would not allow it et cetera in 2015 there was this new young very uh charismatic new leader that who emerged um Demirtas, and he took the Kurdish party across the 10% threshold and became the third largest party in parliament and really the 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 opposition to Erdogan and um and now of course Selahattin Demirtas has been in, is in jail, and they're trying to disband his party. party. He's been in jail for four years, then we still don't know what the charges are against him. They keep coming up with charges, but they're all bogus. Anyway, so the, the, the interesting question is, did Erdogan in 2003 intended to create this kind of personalistic authoritarian system or not? Erdogan, I think the answer lies in um the Erdogan being essentially a clever politician who will take any opening that is given to him and drive a truck through that opening, in other words, he will push 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 push, and if you don't stop him, he will grab stuff so because your position was so weak because um. Uh, He managed to slowly change the institutions of the country. Um, And there was very little uh, that could stop him. Um, He he essentially is an opportunistic politician, I would say. And um, so this is where we are today because he managed to to, to bulldoze over everybody, and and he did that because they allowed him to do it. And when he, as I mentioned earlier, when you've had serious opposition, he's gone after the opposition, like the Kurdish party that is now being um, this you know taking being taken apart um, by quote unquote the judiciary that's accusing them of all kinds of um, uh, incredible. Um, crimes. But anyway, so um, that's what he is. I think he's an an opportunist who has grandiose ideas about himself and where he wants to take the country. Um, He sees himself certainly as one of the great leaders of the globe. He wants Turkey to be kind of the leader of the Muslim world, and if if there was such a thing as as a uh, Muslim organization um, that had a seat in the UN Security Council, a perma- he would like to have a permanent seat in the UN Security Council. I mean, he keeps talking about the world being larger than five, i.e., meaning larger than five permanent members. Um so he he um wants uh, I mean you guys maybe are too young to remember Roger Dangerfield, but Roger Dangerfield was a co- comedian that always wanted respect, and that was his shtick. And Edwin is like a little bit like this, except that he doesn't have any sense of humor, but um the uh he wants people to recognize him um as a global a global leader and you know initially he wanted to assume complete control in Turkey and he achieved that and once he's achieved that now the next step is to to make a name for yourself on on the global stage and that's where we are today I mean that's what he's aiming at
2: so you discussed his seemingly ruthless Political opportunism And a lot of his more general goals and ambitions for how he sees Turkey's place, but really more his place within the bigger scheme of, of, of the world. So could you speak a little bit more specifically about Erdogan's short term and even long term ambitions domestically in Turkey and also um, uh, internationally as a regional power? And how has his foreign policy especially been different from the foreign policies of his predecessors?
0: Domestically, I think he has achieved everything he can achieve in terms of assuming complete control and power in Turkey. The one thing that eludes him is the economy because the economy is not something that a single president or a single decision maker can control because it's made of so many moving, moving parts. And especially... Um, At a time when now the globe because of COVID, but even before that, if you think about the uh, uh, 2008-2009 economic crisis, etc., Turkey is a country that is very dependent on international trade. Uh, which is actually a good thing, and I don't say it is um, negatively. And Turkish, the Turkish economy under Erdogan, uh, and he did that actually quite well. He really encouraged a great deal of investment, opened up opened up the eco- economy to outside investments, to to trade, to integration with, with with the globe. So he took advantage of globalization, except that um, he also have some really, um, shall we say, bizarre ideas in this, for the the most important one at the moment. And then this is a mistake he made this morning that I referred to. He seems to believe that inflation is created by high interest rates, right? If you, anybody who does Eco uh, 101 knows that you use interest rates in a capitalist economy to fight inflation, when the inflation rate goes up, your interest rates go go up. But Erdogan, partially because of his ideological and religious um, uh, preferences, is hates the notion of interest rates. But he is convinced that it is interest rates that um, uh, that cause inflation and. and he he got rid of the central um, bank governor and put in uh, again acolytes who followed his dictum to reduce interest rates when the inflation rate was going was become, was going up and as a result inflation rate became higher and higher and created a crisis so eventually he eventually had to to give in and got rid of the new uh, central bank governor that he had and he, and just about three months ago brought in a new central bank governor who is um, a traditionalist and immediately what the guy did was to increase interest rates radically and that immediately sh- improved Tur- the Turkish lira the Turkish lira gained against uh, uh, the, the the American dollar it stabilized because it was on, in a free fall so he's And then this morning, he gives a speech and he says, he doesn't believe in high interest rates and he thinks interest rates should go down, just at the time when the central bank finally managed to get things together. And of course, the immediate reaction was that the Turkish lira lost value. So I say this because the the challenge for him is the economy. Even though he understood that opening the Turkish economy was important trade uh, that Turkey would gain from trade, he still has some, uh, should I should say, archaic un, uh, understanding of, of economic, um, um, economic science and is prone to making mistakes. And he gets um, flummoxed, I think, when the economy... Uh, doesn't do as well. I mean, he's he he got, he got used to a booming economy in the early years of his um, prime ministership and, and presidency uh, all throughout, I think, 2000, you know, even I would say 2012. Um, but you know economies are cyclical and turkey is is an economy that's fairly well integrated with the with the global economy so what happens in the globe affects turkey and that's not something you can control right you can manage it but you can't you know when the when the global economy is tanking you you're not going to have a um gangbuster um uh Growth in Turkey, right? That's that's not possible. Anyway, so that's that's his real um, weak point. But so, so, in terms internationally, in terms of what he, he's been doing, he he did two things. I mean, he always had this intention of using the Turkish military and Turkish power which, by the way, comes also from the fact that Turkey is a member of, the, of NATO, right? because that gives Turkey a great deal of importance in, in the world. But, so he actually was very smart. He started to invest a great deal on um, developing a, an arms industry in Turkey. So, for instance, Turkish drones were decisive, in supporting the Libyan government uh, last year, in 2020. Turkish drones were, uh, again, decisive in helping Azerbaijan defeat Armenia in Nagorno-Karabakh. And the Turkish, I mean, Turkish drones are genuinely, I mean, yes, they probably copied the technology from others, especially probably the Israelis. but, so, but he invested. I mean, now you're seeing the fruits of that investment. The same thing is happening uh, with uh, w- with the navy. I mean, they're, gonna, they're building um, destroyers, and they're going to build this. They're going to launch a small aircraft carrier, more like a helicopter carrier than an aircraft carrier. But these are major developments that have given the Turks an ability to project power. Now, just having the ability to project power is not sufficient. You also have to have the will to do it. Turk, the Turks, until I do I mean, Turkish governments have always been reticent when it comes to sending troops abroad, getting involved in other countries' um, internal matters, uh, projecting power beyond the, what the NATO alliance asked for. And uh, so, but now we see that the Turks, having been intervened obviously in Syria, they kicked out the US allies, the Kurds there, and unfortunately the Trump administration allowed them to do it. Uh, The Turks intervened militarily in the Libyan civil war. I mentioned Azerbaijan. The Turks have um, troops in. in in, in the Sudan, they have a base in Qatar, they have other bases in the in in the Red Sea um, so they have essentially used their military powers um, but also a kind of an aggressive foreign policy to project power regionally. and when you look at the Middle East now and I define the Middle East not in the traditional sense because if you look, at the way U.S. government, for example, is organized, um, Turkey is in Europe, right? Um, and essentially, everything that's south, south east of Turkey becomes the Middle East. Well, Turkey is really a country that is in both Europe and the Middle East. So, my I I think of the Middle East as essentially includes even maybe, if you want, Greece and Cyprus and Turkey and and the rest of of the Middle East, so if you take that geography, today Turkey is probably the, the most, the single most important military power. Uh, the only one that comes close to, or who probably still, um, you know, is actually probably maybe even stronger, but would not get involved in this is Israel. But but the Turks have essentially become. Um, the single most important decisive country in, in the region. And they, they intervene in places and, and manage to change the outcome of conflicts, etc., in favor of their clients or allies, etc. Um, and they've been doing it with a great deal of impunity, partially I would argue, Uh, And this is really a phenomenon of the last uh, four years, which obviously coincide with the the years of the Trump administration. For reasons I I still don't really understand very well, Erdogan and Trump um, managed to strike a very close relationship, and Erdogan got away with a whole series of things um, that no Turkish government would have been able to do. Until, and that's the the interesting thing here is, um, there is this crisis about the purchase of Russian anti-aircraft missile system, the S-400s, that finally, um, and that's not even Trump, I think it's a bureaucracy, the Pentagon, which has always been very pro-Turkish, said enough is enough, and they impose sanctions on Turkey, buying the S-400 because the the S-400s are are a dangerous weapon in the sense that the Russians can get a great deal of information about the latest American fifth generation fighter aircraft, the F-35, which the Turks intended to buy 100 of them, and also were part of the production process. And they were going to produce, and they were producing parts of the F-35s in Turkey. But because the s hundreds, missile system would, would provide a glimpse into the F-35s um, stealth capabilities, the Pentagon said, enough, we're not gonna let you. And Trump could not stop that, right? But that, but I, I, the reason I, I mentioned this particular example is because I think Erdogan went for the S four hundreds, thinking that yes, the Americans are going to object, but you know they will, they always do what we want. They never really, really push us, push us very hard, and they'll find a way to to live with the S four hundreds, and and also hope that if Trump won the election, that somehow this would be resolved, and now they are facing for the first time um, a, an American, should we say, decision-making um, establishment, both the bureaucracy, the Pentagon, the State Department, and Congress. And now the new White House will be um, quite strong on saying to the Turks, no, you can't. Um, you, you can't have the S-400s and the F-35s at the same time, which really is an amazing conundrum for the Turks. It's a real serious mistake. It also shows to me what's the interesting thing about the S-400 decision is also tells you something about Erdogan in that he made the decision to to purchase those, uh, those weapons, cost them $2.5 billion from the Russians, and... Um, And he did it without really giving a thought to, what if the Americans really um, say no? What if the Americans, because he he was warned, not to buy the S-400s. The S I mean, it's not that suddenly he woke up one day, bought the S-400s, and, and the American government said, no, 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 you're making a mistake. No, he was, he, you know, we, we knew that he was going to buy the S-400s. He was warned numerous times not to buy them, and he still went ahead with it. To me, it shows two things. One is what I mentioned, i.e. that he thinks he can always uh, get the Americans to agree, and because past performance essentially suggests that, um, and this is not just Trump. Even bef- even before under other administrations, and, and he's gotten away with it. But two, the self confidence in his own ability to make decisions, right? And so, this is the first time I think, in terms of international, um, in terms of its his relations with um, with the United States, is in trouble. He also made. A similar mistake, another mistake, I should say, not a similar mistake, in his conflict with Cyprus and Greece over um, the territory, actually the econ- exclusive economic zones and and um, the search for gas in the Aegean and the and the Eastern Mediterranean, and he sent his um, uh, gas exploration. Uh, ships uh, supported by naval vessels into Greek and Cypriot waters, um, despite the fact that the European Union told them not to do it. And, you know, he said, I don't care, I'll do it. And now the Europeans are contemplating imposing sanctions on him, so now he just pulled back. But the expectation is that if Europeans don't Impose sanctions. He'll go back and he'll send the ships again. But again, this is this is part of his aggressive opportunism, if you want. Um, partially, it's his um, self confidence and belief that he will ultimately emerge uh, victorious. And I think, for the first time. Um, his foreign policy adventurism, not just in the in the countries I mentioned, but also the Eastern Mediterranean, and yes, for hundreds. Plus, the one thing we did not uh, really talk about is the increasing authoritarianism in Turkey. That is, people go to jail for no reason whatsoever, get fired from jobs for no reason whatsoever. Um, All of these things now have combined um, and the perception of Turkey in Europe and uh, in the United States has um, gone really negative. And and I think we are on the verge of a major uh, change in policy towards Turkey unless Erdogan really um, changes policy, but not just temporarily opportunistically, but um, but um, implements that. And we are seeing signs now that he's sending, you know, overtures to, to the Greeks, to the Europeans, to the to United States, to Israel, all those countries with which he has had, shall we say, challenged challenge relationships. Um whether it will pay off, I don't know. I, I would not bet on it at the moment.
1: Great. That was super interesting and a lot of information. Um, I'm just trying to think about how, I know you mentioned the importance of Turkey in terms of its um, role as a strong military leader in the Middle East, um, and also how its NATO ties really make it a, um, again, a strong leader in that area. Um, something that you mentioned that I would be curious just to learn a little bit more on is how Turkey's relationship with Russia has afe- affected these relationships um, in terms of Middle East power competition and politics. Um, I know that um, that's something that I've been kind of following closely, especially with regards to how it plays into the conflict in Syria.
0: Um so with respect to, to Russia, look, Russia is uh, kind of, uh, if the United States is 800, 800 pound gorilla, Russia is, shall we say, the 550 pound gorilla in the sense that it's a neighbor of Turkey. It is um, many of the uh, territories like Azerbaijan used to be part of, part of the Soviet Union, et cetera. It's a country that Turkey has to deal with, right? And it is also a country that especially under Putin, who in some ways you can argue resembles Erdogan or Erdogan resembles him, you know, takes very aggressive foreign policy positions. But Russia sees itself as a great power and therefore feels obliged to 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 take those positions. Right, it has to prove itself. Um, so you have to you have to figure out a way to to manage your relationship with Russia. It's not that the Russians are going to invade Turkey, or, um, but the Russians can create problems for you. But there are also, as you mentioned, on in, in some areas, significant policy differences. Whereas the Turks were very um, jubilant when the re- rebellion against um, the Syrian dictator, Bashar al-Assad started the Russians and Iranians stepped in and supported Bashar al-Assad. But, you know, uh, 10 years after the the beginning of the the revolts, Bashar al-Assad is still in power. He doesn't control all of the country, but nonetheless he's still in Damascus thanks to to the Russians. So in Syria, uh, where the Turks are very heavily involved, um, they... um, um, they are um, at odds with the russians right and but you know the i think one way that the turks tried to buy russian shall we say cooperation is the s-400 deal i mean um, putin made 2.4 billion dollars of of the deal he managed to to um, create real problems in the Turkish American relationship or the Turkish NATO relationship. NATO is I mean NATO in general is opposed to the S four hundreds also. And um, but so we don't really know why Erdogan decided to go ahead and buy the S four hundreds despite all the warnings he got. Maybe Putin would put enormous amount of pressure. On him, uh, there was an incident where the Turkish um, the Turkish Air Force shot down a Russian military aircraft over Syria, and initially this was in um, 2017. Um, anyway, so initially the Turks were very jubilant and very proud that they shot down a Russian aircraft and Erdogan, and then his prime minister was Ahmed Davutoglu, who now has become an opponent of Erdogan. But nonetheless, this you know, I remember Davutoglu said, if it happens again, we will willingly do it again, we'll do it again, and we're very proud of our air force. And the Russians just said, okay, they completely uh, cut off Turkish exports to Russia. Right, they made life very, very difficult for for Erdogan in different in different ways, and the the Turks very quickly did a 180 degree turn. Right, um, and so some people think that maybe part of the deal at the time to to get off Russia's bad side was to promise to buy S four hundred missiles. Um, it turns out, of course, that um, you know there was also this coup coup attempt in two thousand sixteen in Turkey that gave Erdogan um, the ability to essentially cleanse his party, the state of anybody he did not like, and and make the uh, and kind of deepen his uh, authoritarianism in in Turkey, uh, but. He some people think also that he may have been um kind of freaked out by the fact that um that night the coup attempt we really don't know what happened that night, but um there was some Turkish Air Force jets that bombed Parliament, although there was no damage really done to Parliament, so I don't know if it was stage or what, but he has used that as a reason to buy s four hundred missiles to protect Ankara from. So basically, it's a very mercurial, a very shall we say, complicated relationship where they disagree, but they also have learned to live with each other, uh, the Russians and the Turks. And um, we see it in Syria. We saw it in Azerbaijan, um, and you know, there will be, there will not, shall we say. Go to war against each other. That will never happen. I mean, the the putting down of the airplane was an, was a one time event, um, but um, but it is a relationship that where Putin has more cards than Erdogan does at the moment, right, and has greater ability to to influence uh, events in in the region than than Erdogan. But Erdogan is compared to where he was in 2003 obviously is a much more powerful leader
2: great so then that brings us to our final question which looks a little bit to the future Uh, and there's two parts to this that i I kind of would like to have unpacked um the first part of this is kind of addressing what we could expect from erdogan and turkey in the coming years so what can we see happening That would potentially change especially in the wake of a new biden administration um and probably perhaps most importantly do you think there is hope for restoration of democratic norms and even potentially turkey's parliamentary system after erdogan's departure from the presidency
0: well let me start let me start with the second part of the question very quickly um look erdogan the way he structured the presidential system um He may be in power for another 12 years, 13 years. I mean, there's ways he can manipulate the system. That's why it's not exactly clear. Um, So you will have essentially a period when the country has been dominated. Let's say it's 12 years from now, right? So Adam has been in power already for 18 years if he stays for another 12 years that's going to be 30 years that one person will have dominated the system and even if he disappears the institutions of the country have been so thoroughly damaged that it will take a long time for democracy to to emerge and it will come back i mean there will be i mean people will be relieved um there will be an effort but um it's not going to be easy I mean you don't when you destroy institutions you can destroy institutions quickly but rebuilding them takes a very very long time hence um, I am not optimistic of a return to democracy soon after Erdogan's disappearance. Um, this, of course, if it happens tomorrow, this, it will be you know the restoration of democracy will be faster than if it happens in twelve years. Um, but this this is obviously speculation, and and um, the um, the as I said, the problem is that the state has been so thoroughly cleansed of anybody who. Might slightly disagree with Erdogan that when he leaves office, um, you will still have a state that is dominated by him. and um, anyway so so I, I, I think it's unfortunately it's, it's it's quite hard. Can there be um kind Arab Spring type rebellion in Turkey at some point? It's possible, but Erdogan really fears that, so he continuously um, controls for that. He continuously um, uh, prepares himself uh, for such an eventuality by essentially repression. And um, so even that, I'm not sure has a great opportunity. As far as foreign policy is concerned um, and where he's going to take the country, and I think the, um, the trajectory is quite set and the investments have been made um, and his own personal ambitions cloud obviously the direction of Turkish foreign policy, and therefore, I expect to see more of the same with ups and downs. That is to say, he, just like now, when he's economically is in, in not in good shape, um, and he finds himself now being pushed on all fronts, right? Um, the Mediterranean, relations with the United States, relations with Israel, that Israeli-Turkish relations used to be very strong. Today, the Israelis are aligning themselves with the UAE and and the Gulf countries in general. And the UAE has said very, very clearly that one of the reasons they are aligning themselves with Israel is because they see Erdogan as the biggest threat to the region. They, they even said it's a big, bigger threat than the Iranians at one point. So, The perception in the region has changed so dramatically that you have um, an alignment that is um, increasingly anti-Turkish, designed to contain Turkey. Um, When you look at the Eastern Mediterranean Gas Forum, it includes all kinds of countries except Turkey. you know, so there is great deal of anxiety in the region about Erdogan and Ar- Erdogan's ambitions. And so you're seeing now um, as I said, a mobilization to to contain him. So he's gonna fight that, right? But he's gonna fight that in by probing for weak points, probing for opportunities. And, you know, when when he's forced to, he's going to backtrack. He's going to, just like he's doing now, pretend that he's interested in good relations with everybody and improve relations um, with Americans, Europeans, et cetera. But as I said earlier, I mean, I think people's perception of Turkey has changed, especially if Adon has um perceptions have changed to such an extent that it's going to be now more difficult for Erdogan to um, to succeed. That said, you also have to remember uh, that Turkey is an important country. Its geography is everything. Uh, you know, as they say in real estate, location, location, location. And Turkey's location, Russia on the one hand, Iran on the other, um uh, is is very critical and which is the reason why turkey especially on the red one has has gotten away with everything it has done because people are always afraid oh my god what if we lose turkey and then you know i'm sick and tired of reading actually articles that um always mention oh we have to be nice to the turks because otherwise we will lose them And and my reaction is, the truth is, that they have no place to go but the West. Economically, they're completely integrated with the West. And um, in fact, by allowing them to to pursue the policies that they have pursued until now, we have actually created a situation where the Turkish population is so anti-Western so anti-American, that that's where the danger is. And that the West should have acted more decisively and stopped this um, deterioration. But we are where we are. You will find that even the Biden administration and um, will try to figure out ways to bring back Turkey, so to say, will not give in on certain issues, will be more critical on human rights. I mean, Trump never mentioned the word human rights when he came to Turkey, but he never mentioned it for anybody for that matter. But um, uh, but you will see more criticism and effort to kind of say to Turkey, you're important, but you also have uh, a responsibility as part of the NATO alliance, a responsibility as uh, an ally of the United States to behave differently. Uh, so, I, but it's not. Gonna, I mean, it's not going to be a cut off. It's not going to be a shouting match between Biden and Erdogan. Right? It's it's going to be more, much more subtle. Um, whether or not Erdogan gets the message, I don't know. As I said, the problem with Erdogan is that he's gone. He's done everything his way until now, and. Um, and gotten away with it. And that has created a certain set of expectations and certain a certain amount of self-confidence that is uh, going to be difficult to to change. But we'll see. We'll find out very soon.
1: Yeah, and I think all of us will definitely be watching to see how Erdogan evolves and how President Biden deals with him um, over this next administration. So thank you so much, okay. Dr. Markey. Um thank We you. really appreciate you coming on.
0: Thank you.
2: Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. For the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.